Hello, Fort Worth. What is up? Welcome to another episode of the Fort Worth Freedom Review. We are a show about local politics that aims to get more people engaged in local issues. Thank you for joining us, because if you are listening to this, then you are engaged. I am Anthony Sosa, and today I am here with Amber Sosa and Christopher Rose to discuss the Tarrant County eviction crisis that we are about to experience, as well as the voting rights march from Georgetown to Austin that occurred this past week, and the prospect of renaming White Settlement Road and the history behind White Settlement among a few other quick hits. As always, all of the resources used in this episode will be provided below in the show notes. This podcast is made possible by the Justice Reform League, a Fort Worth-based nonprofit. You can sign up for our newsletter and get updates on Fort Worth political news and deep dives into local issues at our website, justicereformleague.org. Feel free to contact us if you have any episode ideas or any additional stories that you would like us to cover. You can hit us up on Twitter at FW Review and at our Gmail, FWFreedomReview at gmail.com. start talking about the the texas political important stuff that we're supposed to talk about i suppose um that stuff stuff. yeah there's a lot of stuff this week the politics the politics it's all kind of all over the place what did what did you think of like as you were reading this stuff getting getting started which which part the the gop platform i mean yeah any of it like what diving right into that no we're gonna we're gonna put that off for next week yeah uh because it's so big okay yeah teaser teaser listeners um next week we're covering the texas gop platform and do we have some (laughs) potential surprises for you guys (laughs) yeah we were gonna try and do that this week but there's more stuff that popped up that was a little more you know recent so we're we're gonna hit that next week We'll come back with you guys with this breakdown of the platform. We'll leave the link in the thingy. So if you want to, if you want to get a sneak peek, you can check it out down below. But yeah, so I guess we'll. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the Jake LZ win. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is interesting. I I know literally nothing about him. I don't. Yeah, we don't really either. Um, no, we because like when we did do the research for that race, we researched the Democrats. Because it was like ten Democrats and eleven Republicans that were running for the seat, and we didn't have time to to research everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess to be we we sh- probably should have after it was a runoff between those two candidates, but we didn't. Um, so I mean, he was running against. So if, for, for reminder, um, Ron White died in February. Of was it a COVID? Was that what he died of? I forgot if he died. I don't of think COVID it was of COVID. Okay. Um, no, I don't think so. We talked about it. You can go listen to the episode where we covered it back in February. Um, And so that opened up his seat. And so they had a special runoff election. When we in Fort Worth had our election in May, we voted for it and also in the runoff in June. But Fort Worth isn't the whole district. The congressional district kind of spans across like Fort Worth and Arlington and Dallas. So they just a few weeks ago, I guess I can read it from the from the piece. 
uh, there's a piece that was covered from the Hill. Um, but finally finished that runoff election and his opponent was Susan Wright, uh, the wife of Ron White, who passed away. So she was running for her husband's seat and they were backed by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. Trump has essentially backed Susan Wright. And so what's interesting is, is she lost that this other Republican, Jake Elsey, won. So the Democrats didn't, we weren't able to get a runoff in, in June with one Democrat and one Republican. The Democrats didn't get enough votes, so it was between two Republicans. Uh, so that's where we're at. So that's why it's interesting, because, yeah, he's still a Republican, and that was a Republican seat anyways before before this happened. But he's not a Trump-supported Republican. The, the way that they put it in the articles, he, how, how does he frame it? More of a... So, quote, uh, LZ says, quote, one of the things that we've seen from this campaign is a positive outlook. A Reagan Republican outlook for the future of our country is what the people of the 6th District really want. Um, and so that's what they're trying to frame him as more of a, I guess, quote unquote, traditional conservative or Republican, at least for like a neo. Like yeah, he's neo got a horse on his website. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking like a photo shoot of like him with like a horse and like some work gloves. That sounds right. about right for that district um, to yeah. like what I, I was just I did a quick search as well. And it says um, that he, uh, I guess, was trying to appeal to um, like more of like a bipartisan type of, I guess, platform. So he was kind of trying to do the opposite of Trump and be like, hey, I, you know, am more centrist or whatever and like willing to he's work with Democrats. He's definitely still like for like the border wall. And he like mentions that our economy was booming under President Trump and mm -hmm. we have to get back to that. You know, so he's still simping. He's just <laughs> apparently not quite as hard as Susan Wright. Yeah. Yeah. I've been so interested um, to see, I guess, going forward, how uh, Trump's endorsements uh, either like help or hurt people, you know, because yeah. like I think that, you know, like especially like as a non-Republican, you know, like it just it's hard to differentiate between who is Republican and for Trump and who's Republican and against Trump and like all we hear about um, through I guess like the more you know main mainstream media sources um, and like who's being the most vocal are people who are like Trumpian Republicans um, but not everyone that's Republican is a Trumpian Republican and so um, yeah. it's hard to tell like really where um you know like where the line is kind of like where the line is for people i guess um that are republican and then how um you know like it might actually hurt people you know i mean you could probably say that maybe this did and there's other things that could have contributed like they're saying that maybe democrats voted in this primary to uh, you know for one of these republicans to kind of throw the numbers off there's no way to know that um i don't think that's very likely like it's a, it's possible can but, you still you can still vote in this kind of race so even if you're registered if it's an open primary okay, okay. you can um and so be, maybe because this one's because uh, i don't think all of them are open primaries but i guess it's a, if they're saying that this was this article is from the hill by the way but that's what they were saying um so it's you know are we going to see change you know, on the congressional level they're also kind of framing this as like nancy pelosi or the democrats losing a seat but 
that's they never had that seat. That was Ron White's seat. Right. Anyways. Yeah, that's what I was um, thinking myself. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know yeah, how. Like, yeah. Nancy Pelosi's majority narrows. Yeah. So She's losing control. <laughs> but it is interesting because if you would have asked, I don't know if you would have asked me six months ago, if, you know, we have two Republicans running in this district in GFW and one is backed by Trump and one is not, which one would win? I probably would have bet on the Trump supported one, to be honest. Yeah, um, I wasn't never really sure because like at the same time, you know, like I think that like just for me, like as a as a constituent, like if I have, you know, this person, you know, that's my representative and and they pass, you know, um, even if I'm for even if I voted for them, you know, and they pass and then like their spouse is like, I'm going to run instead, you know, like. I'm not going to just like automatically assume that their yeah. spouse is competent or yeah. knowledgeable or, you know, um, like, like, why did if they were really interested in, in running, like, why didn't they run independently on their own for some other seat? You know what I mean? Like if they really wanted to get into politics, like like the fact that a spouse is going to run, you know, like just. Isn't that what happened with uh, with the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick? What, didn't his wife like take his seat when he became lieutenant governor or something like that? No, that was uh, I think that was Ken Paxton. Ken Paxton, yeah. okay, my um, my beard. I I think I think that was Ken Paxton. Um, but but yeah, like just as a constituent, like I'm I'm not gonna just like automatically vote for their spouse like because I voted for the initial person, you know. Um, and so I think it's kind of a weird thing that that kind of happened. And I and you know at the same time that I'm saying that. You know, like, I'm also thinking about, you know, the ways um, that, like, and, and I don't want to just, like, play, like, you know, the feminist card or whatever. Um, but, like, I'm thinking about how, like, sexism might have impacted the race, you know, mm -hmm. um, in that particular county, um, which I yeah. used to live in. Um, and so, you know, I'm just I'm just kind of thinking that, like, oh, well, like, Ron White was a cool guy or what is is it Ron? Yeah. Yeah, Ron. Ron. Um, Ron White was a cool guy, but like, you know, like, does Susan Wright really know anything about politics? You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just those are like the factors that like I've been kind of considering, like, since I found out that she was running in his place or whatever. Yeah. So we'll just we'll keep an eye on that, you know, have more. You know. Texas and our participation in the House of Representatives. It's always like, I don't know, doesn't we don't we don't talk about it that much except when, you know, what's 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 homeboy's name with the eye patch? Um starts talking Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw, yeah. thank you. And then the other guy from District One, Louis Gomert. Whenever those guys start talking crazy, like then it's like, oh, these are the people uh, who represent Texas in the house. But we've got 35, 30, 35, 36 people in there. Uh, you, we don't really hear very much about that. They all just vote pretty much block with the Republicans. There's a couple of Democrats in there. Um, you know, we our, ours is, is a Democrat. But this is something we don't really we don't hear very much. So I don't think this is going to in the grand scheme of things, especially from like the leftist perspective. I don't think this is going to change very much. or have a No, big, I don't you know, think it's going to change very like much. That. But it, it does tell us, I think, a little bit about, um, you know, about what we can expect from the Republican Party going forward. And it's, you know, just as important that we on the left, particularly in a state such as this one, um, are paying attention to how these races are playing out um, yeah. and and paying attention to how, 
you know, Trump endorsements might help yeah. or potentially hurt um, a Republican candidate. Um, yeah. So. So, yes. So I guess we'll move on uh, to Mayor Maddie Parker. So this is a piece from the Fort Worth Report. I love this publication since we since I started following them like a month ago, six weeks ago or something like that. They, they, they do some really good work. Um, Rachel. Oh, no, I don't want to mess her name up. Burnt. I believe, uh, wrote this article. Mayor Maddie Parker says it's time to reevaluate controversial street name, the history and the future of White Settlement Road. Woke Maddie Parker. Millennial. <laughs> woke millennial Maddie Parker. Stepping up to the to the podium. What do you think? Since you were the one saying that millennials aren't going to make a dip, what do you think about this? <laughs> um, uh, I think it was such a low-hanging fruit. I mean, the, the road in this city are, like, literally called a white settlement. You know, I mean, there's really no, like, making an argument around, like, whether, you know, that has may or may not have racial implications or, or racial origins. You know what I mean? Um, what do you think about it, Rose? My favorite part of the article is um, the quote by whoever was the mayor in like 2005 and oh. he was like he was like pro pro re renaming the street but he was like i've never heard somebody who wasn't white like complain about this <laughs> yeah so it said so they're talking about specifically the town of white settlement because this white settlement road kind of like is, is like the connecting street or whatever mm -hmm. so previous efforts to change the name of nearby town of white settlement have failed in 2005 the then mayor james Ous i'm i'm Sorry if I'm getting that. Uh, who supported the change told NPR, I have never had a minority approach me about the name. Which is just, just a weird thing to say. I've heard people In minority. That, I've heard people of color complain about the name. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, it's, like, to, like personally, like in conversation. The weird thing about this is that he it says he supports the name change. Like he was mayor of White Settlement. Yeah. And was, was just, for the name really change. It was a weird comment to yeah. make. <laughs> but he's making OK. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That, that was that was interesting. So, yeah, I mean, so the reason they're bringing it up essentially is because of the bridge. They're finally finishing the white settlement bridge that's been under construction for like a decade. Right. So it's just yet another thing that has the name white settlement. Yes. And so it's an opportunity to, to change it. And, and, and so, you know, so Maddie says, quote, the possibility of renaming it to something more significant to our community is a conversation that I am very open to. Uh, in quote, and then says, quote, initiating a community driven process is something I fully support and will discuss at the upcoming August 3rd city council meeting, which is this Tuesday. Um, so we'll check this out. So I just curiously was like, hmm, like, I wonder how many people of color live in white settlement. Could yeah. this possibly have played a factor in why this previous mayor has never heard anyone complain about it to him? Mm -hmm. um, and it looks like uh, the last census um, check. I don't think this is from the it's current one, but the one previously. Mm -hmm. um, so like 10 years ago was... Um, the racial makeup of the city was 85.8% white, 4.1% African American, 0.6% Native American, and 1.5% Asian and Pacific Islander. So it's different now. So the, the article actually has it at the, oh, very, they have at it? the very bottom. Oh, they they cited the part. census numbers. And I, I, I'm guessing these are maybe preliminary numbers from this year because the official ones aren't out yet. Um, 
white people are 63% down from, what did you say, 70 what? Wow, that's a pretty big so difference. So Hispanic wasn't a category in the list that Amber just read. Ah. So they might have been putting them together. That's that true. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's, it says whites are 63%, 7% are African-American, 26 are Hispanic or Latino, and 2% are Asian. It, does, it doesn't say AAPA or Pacific Islander, but it, it just says Asian. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. De- demographic change, we could say over the next 10 years, they still, they voted recently to change the name. Again, right? And people were like, no. I wonder why this keeps getting held up. <laughs> so, okay, one thing I thought was really interesting about the piece that I, I kind of want to read for a second was the history of white settlement, kind of where the name came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, did y'all know that before y'all read I actually didn't know know this stuff. Um, so uh, I'm just going to... Yeah, no, I, I would have foolishly assumed that the name white settlement did not have anything to do with race. Mm. Um like a dummy. <laughs> no, and no. And then I started reading the article and I was like, oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> I don't know why I had faith for a second. I don't know. I don't you think gave it's... it the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. No, but so, okay, here, I'm just going to read from the article for a little bit. So it says, quote, the story begins in 1841 when General Edward H. Tarrant, for whom Tarrant County is named, organized the Texas militia to attack Native American settlements on Village Creek. Captain John B. Denton, the namesake of Denton, died in the attack. The attack was part of what was the then president of Texas, Marabou B. Lamar, called an exterminating war against the Native American inhabitants aimed at their, quote, their total instinction or total expulsion, end quote. According to Scott Langston, a faculty member at TCU uh, in the religious department. So I want to I want to repeat that again. The attack was part of an exterminating war, quote unquote, against the, uh, the Native American inhabitants and aimed at their, quote, total extinction or total expulsion so this wasn't like oh we went over here we set up a fort and oh the indians started attacking us so we had to, we had to go get rid of them no it was just like this was an offensive effort where these guys went out there with the intention of exterminating the, the natives who were living there and there's a they have a picture of a advert i guess this is from it says it's from the chamber of commerce of the city of white settlement it's like a little advertisement thing and it says the seven tribes that were there um, the Comanches, the Wichitas, the Kickapoos, the Caddo, the Kidwa, the Tigua, and uh, the uh, Alabama and Coshada. And it's framed in this, it looks like there's travel advertisement or something. It says, white settlement secret number one. White settlement was so named because it was the only white settlement among seven Indian, Indian villages in Tarrant County in the early 1800s. The, the advertisement doesn't talk about why? The extermination <laughs> of the yeah. of those other seven villages by the white it's settlement. Like all of the neighbors that we murdered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But just kind of has you know their little their teepees or their huts like to to show like hey we were we had Native Americans living here I guess but not talking about the rest of it. But of course they wouldn't. But anyways, I'll continue reading. So quote the attack achieved its goal forcing Native Americans to move further west away from encroaching white settlers. Before the white settlers arrived, various tribes lived in the area. Uh, Comanche, Cherokees, Muscogees and Creeks, Seminoles, Kickapoos, Shawnees, various Caddo groups, and uh, various Wichita groups. Quote, I would argue that the Dallas-Fort Worth area was founded upon a genocidal effort against African, I'm sorry, against American Indians. End quote. Langston said, shortly after the army constructed a fort called Fort Worth, tasked with protecting white settlers as they made their way further west. Looking out uh, west over the horizon from the fort, soldiers could see a few smokestacks 
they represented the homesteaders who would later make up White Settlement. According to Carol Davis, museum manager of the White Settlement Historical Museum, the homesteaders would fire shots if they needed assistance from the army. Presumably the army would go from where the courthouse is now down the bluff toward the river where the unofficial White Settlement Road would stretch out leading to the Western homesteads. Even though the fort was established to protect settlers from attacks by Native Americans, there are no recorded attacks against settlers. End quote. So, I mean, can you imagine like living here? You know, I'm not. I don't want to say peacefully because these tribes had, you know, tits and tats. They they had skirmishes and stuff with each other. But living here in your area, in your ecosystem, and then like these these white settlers just show up, set up shop, and then and then like, and start slaughtering everyone. Yeah, like after a minute. You live here now, and um, you'll die if you stay here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, apparently it was uh, obviously um, pretty effective because the yeah. Native American population of that area now is 0.6%, <laughs> where at yeah. least that was the percent yeah. in, like, I guess 2010. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's... that's. What do you guys think we we could, uh, like, like what, what names do you think are going to be on the table? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Didn't Maddie Parker like say something about like honoring somebody else or like like honoring somebody or? So I remember Elizabeth Beck was like saying she wanted. She hasn't spoken to Maddie, but she wants a say because it's in her district. Um, her and and Firestone Walker guy. Hmm. Um, it's in their they share like the street essentially their districts do, so they want to say. Let me find that part of the article. I don't know where that's at. But yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think's gonna be some of the names? Man. I mean, I didn't even grow up here. I don't even know. I'm not the, the best Fort Worth person. Um I mean I'd a Tatiana Jefferson's like the first thing that comes to mind to me. But uh, but that's ignoring the Native American history yeah, here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I guess I was I was thinking more that in that vein of yeah. history. I mean, that makes more sense. I mean, that's the thing. So, like, that's kind of one of something I wanted to ask you guys. Like, changing the name, like, the fact that that is the name does give us the opportunity now to talk about it like we are and go, like, what the F? Um, and so, like, that's the thing that, that, that conservatives are always concerned about with, like, the removal of Confederate statues or whatever. Like, oh, you're erasing history or whatever. Um, that was a good Ben Shapiro voice. <laughs> But like, you know, like, and that, that, that's all, that's bullshit, but that's always the argument that you hear. It's kind of the same thing here where it is interesting. Like you don't want to completely maybe erase the context of like where, where it came from, but maybe give it a, a better, um, framing or something. I don't know. What do you guys, what do you guys think about that? Um, like, like, should we just completely change it to something different or? I was in a panel. It does. To oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, Rilla. sorry. I was just going to say it gives me a little bit more um, context and understanding for uh, the Texas GOP, you know, and their whole like critical critical race theory mm. issue. Because they're like, well, if 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 they're, you know, if we're renaming all the streets and tearing down all the statues, you know. Uh... Wait, no, they're not. That That's not even the argument. 
I, I am worried for not being able to teach about history if we are renaming the things. Because, you know, if the only way that yeah. we're going to find out about the history of white settlement is because the street is named that and it's a discussion now, um, then that's a problem. Yeah. But if we can rename the street and stop glorifying that and then just teach people about that, about the history and including the renaming then that would be wonderful. But with the whole critical race theory thing being uh, bought, I don't know that that's an option. So now I'm just confused. That's in. I hadn't thought about the like relationship between like the critical race theory thing and then renaming, renaming stuff. So that's actually really, really interesting. Um, yeah, it's definitely connected. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about how like these two things would play out together. Um, but I, I was going to say I was on a, a panel discussion at um, at UTA maybe like at the, I don't know, like maybe back in like March or something like that. Um, and I was giving a presentation and part of my presentation was um, talking about the um, the KKK building over on mm -hmm. the north side of town mm -hmm. um, okay. and the work that um, DNA Works is doing to try to like obtain the building um, and then like make it into an art space because they're talking about tearing the building down and this group um, of activists is like, we don't want you to tear the building down. Like we need to have it here so we can like kind of see like where we're coming from. Um, and the two other people that I was on the panel with um, were, were both people of color and um, they were like, like we never really like came to like a, a definitive, you know, um, decision on like what, whether it is good or bad to like preserve, you know, these types of legacies, you know, because the, the perspective of DNA works is that, you know, like people don't have the right to erase, you know, like the atrocities that have been committed by this organization. And it's not really fair for the city to, you know, um, try to erase that as well. You know, like we need to hold on, you know, like we need to have this so we can as sort of like proof of, of what, of harm that was done, you know? Um, and, Neither and both of the other panelists um, were like not really for that, you know. Like they were kind of like, you know, like I don't like. They were both just kind of like I don't know that we should be preserving this building or yeah. you know, like they're they never said like they never came out like uh, completely against it, but were not like immediately for the idea of preserving it yeah. either, and we're kind of leaning more towards not wanting to preserve it. So I mean, yeah, you can do both. Oh no, what happened to Discord? really weird Wild. so amber you were saying that the people on the panel oh yeah so on the panel discussion um you know we kind of discussed the idea of you know preserving racist legacies um whether it's good or bad um and everybody was more or less you know undecided um and i actually had some uh, one of my hate crimes professors also say that they are against the preserving stuff um, you know, um, like just kind of like, I guess, phil philosophically. Um, however, I, you said, I'm sorry. You said they were against it. Um, yeah, I have a hate crimes professor that was actually like 
like, no, I don't like this idea of preserving these things. And um, as a person who, you know, teaches like, you know, racism and, um, you know, the disgusting legacy of lynching and, and all of that, um, you know, I kind of, uh, it's an interesting person to, to, you know, it's like obviously someone who's really well informed on the topic. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can, so there's so many ways to go about doing it. You can still commemorate or honor and or educate without having like the thing still being there, right? Like you could raise the building and put a park there. Like like they're kind of, I mean, I guess they didn't raise anything, but they put, they're putting a park where the lynching tree was for Fred Rouse. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean, that's something you can do where it's like, okay, we have a park, we have a plaque here or something that like says, hey, this yeah. is what was here, but it's not here anymore. Here's why or something like that's one way you can do it. Um, well, but, there's other ways that of actually preserving buildings that I think have been, at least in my opinion, um, and I don't know what that my opinion counts for, but um, that I've seen done really well is like the Equal Justice Initiative um, in, um, in Alabama, where it's like the first um, museum that's like for, you know, I guess like honoring, you know, the lives that were lost to, you know, the American tradition of slavery um, and the, um, I'm, I'm trying to think that. The legacy, I think the legacy museum is like the museum part of of what they do, but it's actually in a building that was originally used for um, warehousing slaves and cattle um, when they were being brought, you know, to um, that area of Alabama. They're like kind of like marched up this like main street and, um, you know, like before they were sold to um plantation owners and whoever um, they were actually like kept in in this warehouse and the exact like building like where that happened um, is now America's first museum you know to educate and actually honor victims of slavery and it's actually a really beautiful museum um, I think they did a really great job of transforming that space into something really meaningful and um, I think that's a, an example of how it can work really well. Um, and like part, the fact that it was, you know, the space like where this took place um, really kind of gives it um, a, a type of like a type of like power that like I don't even really think I can I can articulate. Um, but, you know, um, it, it, they use the narrative and the history of, of the building to really transform the space for something positive. Um, I, uh, Doc, I've also been to Dachau Memorials, uh, the Dachau Memorial site in um, Dachau, Germany, which was one of the concentration camps. Um, they preserved like the entire camp um, and several of the buildings that are on it. Um, I think Auschwitz is also um, a memorial site now, um, but that's something that, um, you know, this, um, you know, Germany decided to do to, you know, commemorate the people that were lost, you know, during the Holocaust um, on these camps. And um, I, I think that there is something to kind of being in that space that can be really powerful. But I, I also am a white person that, you know, I don't have any ancestors that were victims of crimes like this, you know. So, you know, like, you know, me being in, in that space and, um, you know, kind of like experiencing like, you know, the heaviness of it, um, knowing that, you know, my ancestors and, uh, you know, like were likely in, in some way, you know, playing a role, not maybe in slavery itself. I, I honestly don't know for sure. Um, but like, I also don't, if it is hurting other people you know, who, whose families and ancestors like were directly impacted by these types of crimes and this type of harm, and it's offensive to them, you know, like, it's not really fair. Like, 
in my opinion, um, you know, to keep these these spaces as they are, you know, like so that I can, you know, have um, an experience with it. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So like, I don't know. Like I'm, I personally am just like mixed on it. I mean, you know? I think yeah, I think you should ask the people who were affected by the thing. Like they should have a stake in like what you're saying. Yeah. And I think it really, they should have the final say. I agree. Um, but that almost never happens in these types of situations. You know, mm -hmm. it's real. it's really, it really is a, another form of imperialism when it comes down to this, this perpetuation of a story or of a history through any type of monument. Um, you really reducing the thing down to, to very basic elements to kind of make it communicated to to just regular people and in doing that in itself something is lost um and so i mean like there is no perfect way to kind of go about doing this but just kind of for the you know not taking into account what what actually happened and saying oh we need to have this i mean that's the thing like i kind of want to just as a history person like point out the the big philosophical difference here there seems to be and it never really occurred to me until we started talking about this um a belief by some people that preservation is inherently good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that it's just, oh, we just have to preserve it because that's the right thing to do. But why, why is that the right thing to do? Who says that's the right thing to do? Um, we erase it all the time. <laughs> like that's the, uh, that's how history is. Erasing things is a beautiful part of like the cycle of, you Absolutely. know, life. Like that's. Absolutely. It's just as much as a part of it as the other. And so, I mean, to, 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 to value so one. And, yeah, and he like to hold on to permanence even when it's harmful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I mean, you know, and everyone's gonna fall different part. You know, they're gonna fall on this differently based on their personal experiences and their life experience and stuff. But I just and that's really kind of what this comes down to. Like, do you believe in erasing history uh, or not? And like to to say no, erasing history is bad. It's like that. Well, that's that that happens all the time. This this is kind of what how revisionism works. And revisionism isn't necessarily a bad thing. Because the stuff that we're talking about now in regards to race, in regards to the genocides of the natives and stuff like that's that's revisionism <laughs> because like that's not the original story. You know, that's a revised story. So none, none of these things, none of these historical questions are like inherently good or inherently bad. They're just questions, you know, and so like yeah. we can choose to explore these things or not. But to expect kind of everyone to agree or to fall on one side of these things is, is uh, I think, a little naive. So, yeah, I'm very curious to see where where this goes. What do you? Back yeah. to your original question, like, where do you think? I think, I think that too, like, it's, you know, it's fun to sit around and like talk about all the philosophical reasons, like why it might be better to preserve and, you know, to, to be like, you know, if you, well, if you do it right and with the intention to, you know, all, all these things and like, it could be good, but like in the end, just like the fact that we all, you know, like, obviously, we, we don't all have, like, a seat at the table. I don't know. We might we might end up voting on it or something. But, like, the fact that we have a seat at the table, like, the three of us specifically now in this moment, and, like, so many other people that don't have any connection to, you know, the history of white settlement, you know, or, like, you know, anything in the example. But specifically this, like, the fact that that we have a seat at the table, even to just like sit here and talk about it is like a ridiculous amount of privilege. Mm. And I think that definitely like, it, it should just come down to, you know, the, the people that are most affected by this and, and what they need because yeah. everything is impermanent. And if 
the continuation of White Settlement Road, like, is going to hurt people in the future, then, you know, we need to, to do that. Or, or if, you know, however we decide to keep educating people about that, you know, like, we need to just view it, like, in a future way, and it and it should just be up to the people that that affects, you know? Absolutely. Does, it, does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah that makes a no, lot absolutely. of sense. And, I, and, and so, like, but like Amber said earlier, the percentage of Native Americans who still live in the area is, you know, less than right. less than one percent. So who's here, you know, to 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 really give them that voice, or whatever? Who's really going to be making this decision? And like, obviously, it's like the residents who currently live in White Settlement. Um, and that's one that thing that's interesting to me. The the road stretches so far, and it stretches yeah. through these districts that like the city gets to decide the mm-hmm. name of the road. Um, and so that's. Yeah, man. I don't know. This will be interesting to kind of keep an eye on because I who knows what they're gonna call it. I really hated the names that they threw out in the in the article. West, uh, West Settlement, or just the Settlement. Okay, yeah. The names in the <laughs> article were definitely just like erasure. Yeah, <laughs> like, like what? This is. It was like we're gonna we're gonna not actually change the name. We're just going to paint over that word. Yeah. Yeah. What? So no. that's yeah that I there, think it's not bad. it's not any it's not a transformative process that they're looking at right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah, like it's different. not like how can we take the terrible history of white settlement and like move forward in a positive way. Yeah. They're like let's just forget it. What they like, should do. I think do. that's the difference in the yeah. approaches. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, like they should You can you can you can move forward in a in a in a way wrong you know but like like i'm not saying that that's always the correct thing to do or that it's always done well but like ignoring it is never the thing to do no you're gonna have to have to i mean that's the thing ignoring it is is literally erasing it you know and so like that that doesn't give us the opportunity to talk about it to learn about it we have to like dig a little deeper to uncover this truth or whatever Erasing yeah. it with no closure and mm-hmm. no like, and this is when it was erased, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of cities. I mean, honestly, like the history of white settlement is very much the history of Texas yeah. <laughs> and the history of, of the United States. You know, I mean, I think you would be kind of hard pressed to find um, a city that was founded that didn't begin um, in, um, you know, indigenous genocide. And I think that there is, you know, I mean, we're really like, sadly, you know, like at least in in this area, like just now even like acknowledging that. Um, And so I think that, you know, as time goes forward, you know, hopefully these communities um, and, you know, the descendants of, of, you know, those that were most impacted um, are able to have a, a way to, you know, kind of like honor the memory of those of those um, victims and and still be able to you know, do it in a way that you know is like more restorative if that's even possible at this point you know mm-hmm. um, and and something that's like uh, you know like for for them you know not yeah. not to make you know like the descendants of the perpetrators feel better about themselves but um, yeah. you know in a way that can kind of like you know may hopefully be productive in. Um, you know, building more social cohesion, you know, of these areas. Yeah. And I think you can do that by consulting the local historians and the historical societies in the area because they've got a lot more information on this stuff than the majority of us. Yeah. Able to 
advise. I'm curious to see what they're going to do then. So, okay, we've got a few more stories to hit. Uh, let's talk about the new march, the march to from Georgetown to Austin, the 27-mile march for voting rights. Um, and they're comparing this to the Selma, Alabama march. Amber, do you want to talk about this a little bit? Um, yeah, I can I can talk about it. Um, I uh, actually found out about this where I find out all of things politics on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and um, I don't have any other social media, so I don't um, I'm probably I'm sure I miss I'm sure I miss a lot. Um, but but yeah, so um, you know, as we are all aware of you know the really oppressive voting restrictions um, that are up for, you know, being passed um, this current legislative session here and around many southern states. Um, uh, that basically, um, there is a group that I've actually been kind of following for a while um, called the Poor People's Campaign on on Twitter, and um, there are you know basically like an activist group that is um, you know like I guess taking the approach of like you know, helping the working class. Um, it's a, a multiracial organization. Um, and they have been doing um, several different, uh, getting more involved, like, politically. Um, and they organized this 27-mile uh, march um, from Georgetown to Austin, um, to the state capitol, and held a, um, a rally there that I think lasted for, like, um, like a day or two. Um, I guess like Saturday and I don't, I don't know if it's still going on today, but yesterday was like the big day of the event. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of, kind of amazing. Um, yesterday, the heat index here in DFW was 109. Today it's going to be 109. <laughs> you know, this is like literally like probably the worst time of year that you would want to march 27 miles um, in Texas. Um, but I just, I was, I just find it really inspiring and um, it really gave gave me a lot of hope. And I feel like this is really like what we all should have been doing yesterday is attending this this rally. But um, once they they made it, um, they had several different people that were lined up um, to join them and speak. Um, the main person that I see that is like most active is um, uh, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. Um, I think he's kind of like the the brainchild behind um behind this um along and he's part of the poor people's campaign um but uh beto o'rourke was there um i think it was uh i don't remember i don't know if both of the castro brothers were there or it was just one but i think it was um like what either joaquin or julian gave um a speech yesterday um, i actually missed that speech when i was like watching the live stream of it um but willie nelson also showed up to um, I think he like played some songs and, you know, gave um, a speech about, you know, his support for the, um, you know, preserving voter rights um, here in Texas. But um, I don't know. I'm just I feel like like so many people are so freaking burned out from 2020, you know, like mm -hmm. not just not just like the pandemic, but just like the the freaking like Trump presidency you know like the last few months of 2020 um and you know the first part of this year um have just been so draining that I feel like so many people are just like burned out on politics right now um and I I can't express like how much like this is not the time to like get really burned out like we have to stay yeah. engaged um you know the the voter restrictions that as we've covered here are 
abhorrent. And um, I just, I am, I wish that like everyone had, like can take the energy that they put into, you know, like hating Donald Trump um, and put that into like caring about like voter rights and in yeah. turning Texas blue. You know, it's like, I mean, I get like everybody wanting to like check out and stuff, but I haven't seen like nearly the amount of energy or concern like among just like regular people like about like these voter restrictions as I have about like even like one or two of Trump's tweets. And um, I am so glad that this organization has put this march together and that people are still trying to, you know, um, move forward with, um, you know, progress and um, and fighting oppression. <laughs> you yeah. Know? No, it's really interesting to me the parallels in the article, the Texas Tribune article did a good job of of illustrating this between so the, the the reference to Selma and like the comparison yeah. to the march to Selma. Yeah, the march to Selma. And saying like okay, well why is that a why is that a good comparison? Well, essentially like they were also marching for voting rights. Yeah. And they were marching for voting rights for federal intervention because the state wasn't gonna do shit. And we're in that exact same situation here where Texas is not going to do anything about it. Um, but we're, we're pleading with Congress to actually yeah. do something about it, yeah. to actually preempt the, the Texas law that they're trying to get through. That they, Again, to remind everybody, we covered this last episode, the Texas Democrats are, are fugitives of the state right now. They are yeah. not in the state. They are in Washington, D.C. As a result of this, our special session that the governor called is not happening. And this has like been just a big wrench in the governmental works that the Democrats have thrown in there because they're trying to stop this legislation this voter restriction law that we detailed last episode. Um, and so this is related to that. And then because of COVID and everything, these these marchers, they only restricted it to 100 marchers. It probably would have been a lot bigger had they have allowed yeah. it. But thankfully, it wasn't because of this heat. And so they actually broke it up. It took them a few days to get down to Washington. They, they, they broke it up to where they were only doing a few miles a day, of course, so they wouldn't, you know, die on the way down there. Um, but yeah, this is, I agree, Amber, like this is super inspiring. I wish this would have gotten more attention yeah. and more coverage, yeah. um, that people, more people would have been aware that this March was even happening. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know what the final number was of, of like who all attended the rally at the Capitol. Um, but it was, it was pretty big. Um, yeah. but like, yeah, like you were saying, you know, like the majority of the speeches were like basically begging Biden to, um, you know, pass, uh, what's the name of it? The People's, the People's Act. Um, oh, they're trying to get a, a, I can't think of the name of the act, but basically they're trying to get um, Biden to pass a federal act um, that would basically like re restore and protect um, voter, voter rights um, across the country so that states aren't able to like keep, you know, like nicking, um, I mean, I guess, I don't know what the right word, but like, you know, like pushing them back and, and restricting them. Yeah. So this is so, you know, it, I hope this yields some results. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I haven't heard Biden. Um, <laughs> I haven't heard if Biden agreed or not. Um, but but I, I certainly hope so. And I and I agree. Like we kind of thought we talked, I think, last time we, we covered this on the show about how the only way to really um, protect voter rights is through a federal a federal mandate you know like it is going to have to be the federal government that steps in um obviously greg abbott's not going to do it um and so i i hope that something comes from it um i think it's great that beto is there um you know like 
we still, as far as I know, I don't think he has officially announced a, a run for governor. Does no. anybody know? No, I haven't heard. I haven't heard any that. updates. I haven't heard any updates either. So, um, you know, I'm assuming, hopefully, that he still that maybe he will. Um, but I think it was it was good that, you know, he was there, and also that um, at least one of the Castro brothers was there. God, I can't. I hate that I can't remember which one it was. Um, it's okay. But, you know, like, I would, like, I don't want the Castro brothers to go away. I want them to, like, stay involved politically. Um, I want Beto to stay involved politically as long as it's beneficial for people. I mean, um, that's been the weird thing. He's technically not involved politically. He yeah, right now have, he's not. Yeah. He's just been volunteering and drawing attention, raising money for certain things, you know, like during the during the ice storm and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, Rose, what do you think about all this? Were you, were you surprised to see that this march happened or... What do you think? Yeah, um, I I hadn't heard anything about it beforehand, um, but I think it is cool that that all those people came out, um, especially Willie Nelson. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, think, yeah, people will do what uh, he says. So I was really really yeah, glad that yeah, they will. People they care will. about Willie Nelson. <laughs> Everybody loves Willie. Like you, you said that, and I was like, oh man, my father in law is gonna love that. Yeah, yeah, Willie like, is such a good example for like. Your like stereotypical like Texan or whatever like people people really they care about his opinion I think yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. so we'll we'll keep an eye on that see how that goes obviously that'll be tied to the Texas Democrats and what they do we'll let you know and follow the Poor People's okay. Campaign yeah if you're not Check already yeah like this is a great a great organization so we've got two more stories left I want to I'm gonna switch the order up here at the last minute I think uh, I want to save the long one for last so we can just kind of go off. Um, until <laughs> until we've until we've all said our piece, um, so right now I want I want us to cover the Texas Supreme Court, and this kind of connects to the Democrats that we were just talking about a second ago, hiding out in Washington D.C. Um, essentially, the Supreme Court is going to be the one, the Texas Supreme Court, not the not the federal Supreme Court. It's going to be deciding whether or not the governor has the authority to withhold payment for state employees that he has essentially did, like he vetoed a bill earlier and this has been going on for a while now that like in August there's there's staff isn't going to is it at first it was going to be like the Congress people, the Texas House and the Texas Senate Democrats who bailed at the end of the first session or also now out of D.C. will not get paid. Um, but what ended up happening like that's not quite constitutional, like they have to get paid, but it's like all their staff and stuff maybe doesn't. And so he's withholding that yeah and so now it's being challenged and this the texas supreme court is going to be the one deciding whether or not the governor has the authority to do that and what it essentially comes down to is a separation of powers issue and like if you say he does then that weakens the judicial branch and the courts that weakens the legislative branch and that strengthens the executive and the governor's power which is already in this state getting pretty tyrannical as far as like the power of the governor um, which I know I've seen conservatives getting mad about this, being like, screw Abbott. Like he is way overreaching his bounds. And so that's at least it's been nice to see people at least be ideologically consistent, <laughs> those, those who are uh, about that. But yeah, so the, you know, the question I'm not going to read from the article or anything, but the question pretty much comes down like, it, do y'all think the Texas Supreme Court, who's mostly Republican, <laughs> is going to uphold the governor and weaken their own? branch of government uh for the sake of a short-term political goal or do you think they'll like actually look out for their own judicial interests 
I think they're going to look out for their own judicial interest. And maybe this is just me being like overly optimistic. Um, but I really, really at least hope that that they're going to, um, you know, like I, I hope they don't. I, I don't think they're going to side with him. I think because so many people are so pissed at him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if he were point. if he were doing these things and like half of his own party wasn't like fucking pissed at all his all the shit that he keeps pulling, then I think there would maybe be like some reason to, you know, like make an argument. I mean, if you're not just going to like argue based on like a separation of powers argument like standpoint, like all like in and of itself, you know, which I think or at least would hope that you know th that the Texas Supreme Court is going to be bounded in in the belief that there that the power does need to be divided up and not just like all be like within like one branch of um of government and and I really think that like I I think that for many of them that in and of itself is enough to to argue against against what Abbott is trying to do however um, you know, because they're supposed to be above party, right? You know, they're yeah. so in theory, yeah. in theory, in theory, they're supposed to be above party lines. Um, and I think that, you know, like, I mean, even if you're just a person who like has this like lovely, you know, record as working, working as a lawyer, maybe being a county judge here or there or whatever, you know, like if you're if you're if you're a career, you know, judge lawyer person and then you finally get to the supreme court and that's been your dream the whole time you know like hopefully you like you have a lot of respect for that position and like what that yeah you know entails um and so i want to think that like just that in itself is enough for them to go against abbott but the fact that abbott is like really kind of ripping apart like the texas gop like in many ways in addition to him trying to lessen their power, um, I would think that would be like just enough to push like somebody that was like, like oh I don't really know you know like to to side with um, to side against him. What do you think, Rose? You think that that sounds way more informed than anything <laughs> I've got? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean. She's shaking just, her head. <laughs> Aggressively. <laughs> I don't know. I've just been reading the GOP platform, so I'm very confused about what they're all about right now. Mm. And um, mm, Good teaser for next episode. I'm interested to find out. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I don't... That is yeah. my... Well, there's been... So this is what gives me hope, and this is, like, research that's, like, been done, like, more like at the federal level, like rather than Texas, obviously. Um, but there is a lot of studies that have been done on judges and yeah. how judges vote. And this is really more in like the circuit court um, rather or in like the court of appeals, like rather than like actual Supreme Court judges. Um, but there has been evidence that shows that once a person gets elected, you know, to like a high enough level court that they just kind of like follow their own internal 
moral compass when it comes to voting one way or the other, like rather than, you know, like, like, oh, I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm for X, Y and Z. You know, like they kind of get to where it's like, eh, like they don't have to side with their party anymore. Like they don't yeah. necessarily have to toe that party line um, unless they, you know, I mean, and that's why, like, it makes more sense. Like the higher up you go, like you're kind of reach your stopping point in your career and you're like, well, this is far enough. Like I don't have, I'm not beholden to, you know, the Texas GOP anymore um, or in the GOP generally. Um, However, like the Texas Supreme court. It's not the highest court in the land. It's not the highest court, (laughs) but also like it's in just looking at previous case law, like they tend to side with the party, with the governor quite often. But they're, but they're, but the party and the governor are like, like, you know, like, holding up like these conflicting ideologies at the same time you well, know it's not confl- it's just not a real ideology well okay fine, you know they just not kids they just don't believe in an ideology they just are out for personal gain or whatever right but like that's what but that but when you're talking about the whole party and like for like limited government and um you know like like giving as much power to the people and you know government bad you know, like yeah. as we say, and then you look at like what Greg Abbott has been trying to do, just giving himself like more and more and more power yeah. and like really like taking on these like starkly and shockingly authoritarian like positions. <laughs> um, and, and that's like the opposite of what the party is supposed to be about. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've even heard like, um, you know, like conservatives like talk about like how Abbott wants to be king of Texas. And he does. Like mm-hmm. if you look at what he does, he does want to be king of Texas. He wants to give himself like, you know, it's like he's like the Kim Kim Jong-un of, of Texas, more or less. And he you know what I mean? And so like I think that like hopefully somebody in that <laughs> party is paying attention and is gonna be like, you know, maybe we should stop this guy. Like he's gonna destroy our our party and um you know people are people are laughing at us like our party's becoming a laughing stock because of greg abbott like hopefully somebody sees some of them think that some of them do we'll see i don't know but yeah this is uh just kind of something to keep another thing to keep an eye on whether or not the governor's going to get even more power whether these people and their staffers are going to get paid or not um again that's all kind of tied up with those those Democrats in DC right now. So we'll we'll keep you guys abreast of, of what happens with them. Also keep you know keep keep your own eyes abreast. Ch- you know, subscribe to the Texas Tribune. Subscribe to <laughs> your own eyes abreast. That, that's just a weird <laughs> sentence. That's uh it's weird words that came out. Like, Never said those words like, in that order before. Like, be mature. Be mature. Be mature. Like, don't laugh. Don't laugh. And I couldn't I couldn't hold it in. Sorry. Sorry. I was Anyways. I didn't I didn't realize how strange it was till it was out. Um <laughs> So anyways, let's get to the last story for today. Again, thanks thanks guys for sticking with us. Um, this one was a bummer. Like it was something I saw Fort Worth Report reported on it. I set it aside and I was like, okay, well, I need to cover this. But I didn't actually get to read it till this morning. And man, I was okay, we have to this is a, this is worse than I thought it was. This is bad. Um, this is about us in Tarrant County, guys. So the the title of the piece, again, you can find it below, is Tarrant County Evictions far outnumber those receiving help as CDC order nears end. So for those who don't know or maybe you know don't remember, the CDC has, has had a moratorium on evictions because of COVID. So people have not been allowed to be evicted. Um, and there legally. was- Legally. Legally, yeah. And there was aid money 
it took a while, took forever to get it approved and get it through. But there was aid money, federal money that was given out to every everyone in the country, you know, cities, uh, counties to distribute to people in regards to helping them stay housed. Um, however, the number of money allocated uh, versus the number of money actually disbursed to citizens is there's a huge disparity there, which isn't explained, um, <laughs> which we'll get to in a second. And yeah, so what is it? 30,000 households, 30,000 households in Tarrant. Let me read from the thingy. I'm just going off the top. I have this thing in my hand. So it's uh, this is an article by uh, Christian Argueta Soto. Thank you for writing this. Tarrant County officials have allocated millions in emergency relief before a national moratorium ends this month, which, by the way, it ended yesterday, July 31st. It's over now, so expect this number to go way up. Um but those at risk are losing their homes that far outnumber the renters receiving help. Records show about 500 financially affected by COVID received emergency rental assistance in June across Tarrant County. Landlords have filed nearly 1,200 eviction cases in the same time period, the month of June. Uh, so 500 people got assistance, 1,200 people got evicted, even though technically... Again, as I just said a second ago, there's a moratorium on eviction, so they're not supposed to be happening yet. Right. Today they can happen. Today they can happen, but they but yesterday in June they weren't supposed to be happening. Right. Yeah. But there were 1,200 that happened. Yeah. So that's bad. Um, and the thing that I thought was interesting was the people who are filing for evictions. They're not, you know, Joe the landlord. Or, you know, some property management company owned by a small number of people. No, these are these big firms that are either in California or Florida. Uh, they're the ones that are a, a, a filing for this for this uh, assistance. So it says the three out of the top five eviction filers in Tarrant County were from out of state. One of them, Tides Waterfront, is on the national list of top 10 eviction filers during the pandemic nationally. So these people are just making a ton of money off of federal assistance, essentially, and, and, and throwing people out of their homes? Or what, Amber, do you, so, and this is, Amber, I want you to talk about this stuff because you worked in housing. Yeah, I did. Um, I, I was a housing case manager here in Fort Worth, um, working with homeless youth, um, trying to get them into apartments um, that were like privately owned. So it wasn't like actually, um, a particular, you know, it wasn't like planned low income housing. Um, so I worked with, actually, I worked with some of the, with some of the people that are mentioned in this article. Um, so, how, so you said how much you thought when you were reading this, you were like, whoa, this number is way bigger than I yeah, thought it was. Yeah, it is. So I, um, when I was, because I've been kind of thinking, you know, like as I'm hearing about these evictions and the eviction moratorium and people, you know, owing, like, you know, like I've heard of people being as, as many as like eight, nine months, you know, like behind on their rent. Um, and I'm like kind of would think to myself, like, well, I wonder how many people in Fort Worth are meeting that category. And in my mind, like I thought maybe between like three and five thousand people, you know, like maybe three or five thousand households, you know, um, I didn't think that the number was anywhere near what it is. Um, but apparently, uh, as of June 
30th, um, more than 30,000 households in Tarrant County, not just Fort Worth, but in Tarrant County, owe $96 million in back rent. Like, And that's just for June. That's not counting July. No, I think that's the whole month. Of June, right? Well, I think that's like how much money in back rent is owed from the beginning of the pan- pandemic, pandemic until now, until then, right? Yeah. So maybe they were able to make a couple of payments somewhere down the line. Um, I haven't like divided 96 million by 30,000 to get like an average. Um, I'm not that great at math. Um, off the top of my head, give, I mean, I require a calculator. Um, so it's $96 million owed by 30,000 households, which is around $3,200 like per household. Um, that's the average. That's the average. So, so yeah, but 30,000 people, um, that is a lot of people. Like that's a, that's a lot of families. And so this is going to have a cascading economic effect. Um, this doesn't just affect the landlord not getting their money. Um, that's one of the things. And if, you know, that, that does affect you know, the business in, in certain areas, if some of these people are, you know, one or two, three property landlords or something like that is going to affect them. But the family that is being removed from their home, forcibly removed from their homes. And that's something that I don't think we talk about very much. At least I don't hear about it on the radio or hear about it. When we talk about these things, we talk about it in the economic sense. Oh, the economy's bad. Uh, evictions are going up. Oh, we got more, more foreclosures. Oh, no. That's bad for the numbers. That's bad for the market or whatever. Um, what about the human beings that are being forced out of their homes? Right. Like, and what does that process look like? And at what scale are we talking about here? 30,000 people. That I mean, are eligible starting today for eviction, um, which is insane. And like what, what makes, what, what does that process look like? Okay. So, I mean, I've been close to being evicted before as a young person, you know, and fortunately I wasn't a whole family, you know, um, but I mean, what that process looks like is um, destroying your credit for one, you know, um, as an individual, like when you have an eviction on your credit history, it makes it nearly impossible to get into another house, into another apartment um, that follow that eviction will follow you for like seven full years and make it really, really hard to find another landlord that's going to see an eviction and be like, you know, I'm willing to work with this person. And of course, like, you know, like we want to believe that these landlords are like nice people that would just out of the goodness of their heart be willing to ignore an eviction on the record of a young single mother of, you know, three or four. But that is not the fucking case. Like that's not it's just not the case. Um, and so, you know, like you get an eviction on your record and you're basically screwed from getting into another apartment. And they do have some apartments that call themselves like second chance apartments that do work with people that have evictions on their records. And, you know, maybe you're able to get in, you know, become a client at like a nonprofit agency that's like willing to like work with, um, you know, landlords and like talk them into like taking in this this new tenant, you know, that has an eviction on their record. You know, maybe you get like swept into that system. Um, but I mean, by and large, like you're looking at, you know, like, you know, having, um, you know, your credit ruined for for quite some time. Um, and I think that 
they I, for one I think they they lifted the eviction moratorium like pretty pretty early you know um and yeah, we're still having cases go up yeah like I read yesterday that in Tarrant County as of yesterday the number of COVID cases and the number of deaths were higher than on June uh, than on July 31st of last year so like this time last year we had less cases than what we currently have um and I think that like just because we rolled out these vaccines, like, you know, I don't know. I, I We don't even know what the actual number of people that have received the vaccine in Tarrant County is because the Tarrant County public health people like <laughs> it up. I don't know if it's them or if it's like the federal like reporting system. But for like, I think like four or five weeks straight, it said that Tarrant County um, had like 33 percent of people that were vaccinated. Which was like, this was, I was just reading this like last week or the week before that. So like, this is like recent, like we had like maybe around 30,000 people, you know, or like 33%, I mean. Um, and so it's not even like we're anywhere like near like herd immunity, like Dallas is, you know. Um, so like, I mean, basically like our public health people, like the CDC, like the city, like nobody is really like working hard or taking things like as seriously as they should be um and i think obviously the moratorium was lifted by the federal government um or by the federal agency but yeah, i mean this the biden is, administration yeah this is yeah i mean this is basically the biden administration like he should have not lifted this like at this time um but the worst part the worst <coughs> part of this whole situation is that the city of fort worth <clears throat> i mean excuse me tarrant county received um emergency rental assistance um you know through the aid packages so like initially they received uh 63.9 million dollars in the first package and then they received an additional 45.9 million in the second package to provide rental assistance to uh residents in tarrant county so that's quite a bit of money so hold on a sec wait a minute so that's about a hundred million dollars right uh-huh so what was the number that you said earlier? 96 million. Was how much is owed? owed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's almost exactly the amount that is owed. Yeah. I mean, almost exactly. So that's that happened. Um, however, like as of June 30th, um, according to this like excellent reporting that we have here, um, as of June 30th, they had only allocated $4.4 million in relief to around 800 households. So they had the money. 800. They, they have the money. They have almost the exact amount of money that these residents need to get caught up on their rent. The and money not was be evicted. The money was for emergency rental assistance. Like th this is the only thing that this money was supposed to fucking be for and they only spent 4.4 million of it like as of June 30th. And now we have 30,000 households that are eligible to become evicted like they never as got of this now. money yeah like that doesn't make any sense to me like why did they not get the money out why rose why did they do it <laughs> supposedly <laughs> supposedly it was because there were issues with people not filling their applications out correctly. Yeah, the mayor of Arlington like gave that excuse. Like it's that's like, the excuse. That oh, it's he people gave. are people are submitting really bad applications and they're like not completed or they're wrong, so we can't. So we, we can't, can't give them, them the money. money. Then change the fucking application process. God damn it! Like, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And so, like, what I'm wondering, what I'm wondering is because, like, when you get when you evict a person, like when the, when the landlord comes to your apartment 
and they put an eviction notice on your door, they will tell you, I want you out by Friday. I want you out by X date. I want you have to leave by the state we're evicting you. Legally, you they cannot do that. No, they got to give you 30 days. Yeah, they have to give you 30 days. They cannot have you out by a certain day. But a lot of people don't know their they don't know their rights mm -hmm. as tenants. Mm -hmm. Like they they mm -hmm. just don't know their rights. Like we do a really poor job in Texas educating people as tenants on what their rights actually are. Mm -hmm. Um and there are even like tenant unions, you know, like where you like pay a dues and like they work with lawyers to like keep people from mm -hmm. from having their credit ruined, you know, so they can find another house after they get evicted and aren't forced to like sleep in a shelter or, you know, sleeping rough or camping or whatever. Um but like but like what I, I, I just don't I don't really understand. So like a lot of people are probably going to get these eviction notices and think that they immediately have to leave. Um, but they don't actually have to. But then there's like a whole like like court process, you know, where, you know, you like the landlord goes before a judge, you know, and then, you know, say the 30 days comes and they like get the constable to your your apartment and they're like, hey, bro, you got to leave. You know, like, everybody that packs up their stuff, they leave. Then you have like you have to show up to court at some point, like with the landlord. And then a judge decides like if the eviction is, you know, like appropriate or not. Um, and so like some people, you know, like if they're part of like a union, like can actually have a lawyer attend that that with them if you're part of a tenants union union. Um, but most people aren't, you know, and so like they end up having to like go to these hearings and, you know, the landlord has to be there. And so, I mean, it, it's just like a, like, it's not, it's not as simple as like, hey, you have to leave and somebody just leaves. Like mm -hmm. this, like, like this wastes taxpayer money, mm -hmm. you know, to like hold these court hearings, you know, like, like taxpayers are the ones that are like mm -hmm. paying for this process to stay in place. So it's like, you know, like in addition to people, you, you know, just like the caught, like just the, the human abuse of throwing someone out on the street in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, like we're also paying like for all of these court processes. Yeah. 30, and for the police to show up to remove these people. Like if these people don't leave. It's a constable. A constable. Okay. Well, yeah, still, they get paid still, by our tax dollars. Right. So and if somebody the, freaks out, like they will call the police. Like if, you know, some people are, are, are terrified of being on the street. No, not everybody has somewhere to go. You no, know? Like, of course not. Thing, like, and that's, and so then just trying to, again, like walk through an individual, like to put yourself in someone's shoes going through this, like, okay, now you're out. Now you have a court hearing date you got to go through. So the article says that there was a hunt, uh, 1,186 eviction filings in June. Which we're not even supposed to happen. Supposed to happen. But they were. 63% uh, of those filings were won by the landlord or the plaintiff filing on their behalf. The majority of those that were won, 15, 515 of them were won by default judgment, meaning the defendant or the tenant did not show up for court. So when you are homeless or in the process of trying to find a new home and dealing with that, you probably have a job at the same time that you're trying to maintain too, right? Maybe you have a family that you're trying to take care of too. In the midst of all that stuff, um, it's not unreasonable to you know miss your court appointment date or whatever when you're when you're going through all of these sorts of things yeah and so it's just like another way and that's assuming that like you got served like in a timely fashion yeah. and that like the court system was like organized enough to like inform you of like when you were supposed to be there because a lot of times like like that get, gets lost mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. um but yeah like like one of the things that i thought was also really 
stupid um, is that like now these landlords, like somewhere down the line, you know, like realize like, oh, hey, uh, so like half of our tenants or whatever, like are behind on their rent, you know, maybe like we should help them file for these <laughs> for these like rental assistant things and then we could actually get our money. And, yeah. you know, somewhere down the line, like the apartments and like the landlords like started realizing like, oh, this is actually a better bet, a safer bet for us for them to file for this government money than to wait for them to like get back on their feet. Because honestly, like, I mean, when you're back nine months. Yeah. Like when you're back nine months, you know, I mean, even as being behind like one month on rent, you know, like it, like in the U S I think that like, I don't know what it is for Texas, but like, I know in some parts of the U S like people, like almost like 50% of people's income Mm -hmm. is like, goes straight to their rent. Uh Like it doesn't go, you know, like it it should be like between 40 and 50. Yeah. Yeah. But like, like it used to be between like 30, like around 30% or whatever. But now it's like in some places it's as high as like 50% for some people or even more, maybe, you know, um, of their money, of their whole income that like goes to rent. So like when, when that's the situation and you're behind multiple months, like, how are you even, you know, I mean, it's, it can be a, like, find, like, like mathematically impossible, you yeah. know, to like, to make up for that. So these landlords started trying to help the tenants, like, get assistance. And one of the things it says in the article is like, oh, yeah, like, you know, like, we want to keep these tenants, like, we want to keep these units filled. And so now we're like, getting these people to like, you know, like, become clients of these different nonprofit agencies that are helping them like get the money that they need for their rent and it's like it's like other assistance from like local organizations when the the federal government already gave them the money like the money that these nonprofits are getting and that they're that they're having to put towards rental assistance the 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 county has that money already like they're using their own money from like donations or like whatever grants that they did like why are they having to spend their own money that from these other places when the money is already there the county has it like that doesn't make any sense either you know what i I mean? mean this is this is what happens you know this is this is essentially the the federal government or the state or the city or whichever whichever you know governing body you want to look at they don't pay for certain things i know in this they say they have the money which is like that's a whole other question which i wish we had answers to but like oftentimes they maybe don't have the money or whatever but they shove it off on on the the local nonprofits the local organizations to pick up the slack yeah yeah so like these like local organizations like unless they have some sort of grant program that's being funded by the county like for these evictions and they're actually getting a slice of that eviction money and maybe the form of some type of grant like maybe that's what's happening but i don't know like the article doesn't say that's what's happening like so it's probably like from their own funds you know what i mean and so like yeah that's it i to me i want to zoom out and like show how this ties into other issues that we're having in the area uh, I don't think you, anybody would debate or argue that we're having a, a problem with homelessness or houselessness here in the area. Right? Yeah. Our population has has gone up a lot over the past five years. You, it's hard to go into a street corner if you're near downtown where you don't see somebody panhandling. Um, this is not going to help. If no. We're having 30,000 homes. People where people think- are being put on the street. And so again, that that like that's an issue that we already have to deal with. And so it's like we can disagree or disagree on like how do we handle the homelessness problem or whatever. But like what, what it comes down to is people need a place to stay. Right. <laughs> people need a place to live. And so like the city can take initiative 
or the county can take initiative and provide housing for people, um, which is what we're going to do, or provide some sort of like universal basic income type thing where people can afford the housing on their own. There's multiple ways to go about it. But at the end of the day, like that's how you quote unquote, get people off of the street. You, you, you give them somewhere to stay. You give them money. Um, you give them money. Exactly. And yeah. like, and studies have been done multiple, multiple times and all over the world where like universal basic income and giving people, you know, small amounts of cash on a regular basis, uh, is very beneficial. People don't, spend this money on drugs and alcohol like the like the like the myth is right no these people actually use this money they save it they use it to get on their feet they use it to get to you know to improve their situation improve their situation yeah things that they can use to either start their own business or things that they need to, to get a job down the road it's always benefited people when you're providing them something so i'm not gonna we can have a whole different episode where we can advocate for you know universal basic income or universal housing which some countries in europe have um, that's a thing. Yes, that's socialism. Oh, scary socialism. I don't understand what's so scary about people having a place to stay. Um, yeah, that doesn't scare me. You can. It, yeah. I'm, I'm more scared of people not having a place to stay. Yeah. Like, and then, oh, like, oh, if you're afraid I'm of, scared of what happens to people like from exposure on the street. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like yesterday. Like that's what I was thinking yesterday. I was like, wow, like there are so many people outside right now that are, that are unhoused and it's a fucking ozone day, which like, can we do a whole episode about the fucking every day being an ozone action day? Like for the last like month and a half. Like, can we talk? Can we have a talk about that? Is anybody else afraid or concerned that every fucking day is an ozone action day in DFW this summer? Like more or less? Like that's not good, guys. That is not good. Like yeah. that's not good at all. But also, I was like, okay, it's a oh surprise, another ozone action day for like. The 20th day in a row. Um, all these people are outside. You know, the health disparities between people that are unhoused and people that are housed is egregious. Um, and the heat index is 109. You know, like, yeah. and look at these people out here, you know, like. And, that, and just, to, just to go, because you're going off and I just want to add to the pile. Like, in addition to that, like, even if you're not homeless, but you're using public transportation. Jeez Louise, our bus stops don't have any covers on them or anything. Like most of the bus stops, if they've got a bench, which a lot of them don't. Most of them don't. Um, The the ones that maybe do have a bench are very often are not covered. And I know that's one of the things that they're maybe going to fix with the new bus system update they're going to be doing over the next few years. So they say. But like, just, there's just no care or compassion for like human bodies, like or in dignity public spaces or health in here in this part of part of the world um, yeah uh, particularly where we where we currently live in fort worth texas yeah like yeah, yeah. um human yeah, yeah. yeah like <laughs> i don't know sorry yeah I don't, we're not we're not offering solutions we're just griping <laughs> but like yeah this, so this is uh, this is uh we're this, trying to further understand the problem so that we can come up with some solutions <laughs> but this is bad like that's kind of the thing i i want us to i wanted us to cover this because this is this is bad uh, and no one, no one's really talking about this in our neighbor, in our neighborhood, in our area here in the city. Um, I had but no idea that the number was that high. We're going, we're going to see the effects of this play out over the next month and a few years. Um, and yeah, so keep an eye on this. And that's the thing, like people are talking about how great economically we're doing right now in Texas, or even in, you heard the mayor talk about how great Fort Worth economy is doing. Um, it just depends on what metric that's the thing about economics, man. It's a bunch of different stuff. It's not just people having jobs or people having houses or whatever. There's a bunch of different things. So you can look. Yeah. You know, and how are you? How are we measuring like this prosperity? Yeah. You know, like what are the metrics being used? You know, like what, um, you know, is it the number? Is it the unemployment 
number or and then like what are you considering employee like being employed or not you know like full-time employment part-time employment um you know if you have a job where you work one day a week like does that count as technically quote being employed you know like uh, like what about being underemployed you know like what if you have two jobs and you make three or three and you make minimum wage at all three of those jobs and you know like is that considered like being gainfully employed like or you know what i mean like the way that like that these politicians choose to measure issues such as this, as well as I would say most social issues and mm-hmm. like try to put a good spin on things. It's because they're not using the best data or they're, or the best metrics to like really give us like a clear picture. Like they just want to tell these companies that are looking at relocating to Fort Worth um, how great our economy is. You know, like you have to think about who their audience is because it's not us. We are not the people that they are trying to appeal to when they're talking about how great Fort Worth is. We we all know that it's not that great. They're trying to talk to all the people that they're trying to incentivize to move here and relocate here to, you know, build up a bigger business class than what we already have. Like, that's who they're pandering to. Yeah, I mean, so just like, to, to kind of point back to the, the top three evictors or whatever in this area, they're, three, they're companies that are out of state. So, like... Obviously, those people aren't getting the money in this moment, but they, I'm sure they've got millions or the hundreds of thousands, dozens of thousands or more clients in the area as well. That money's going out of state. That money's going to California. That money's going to Florida and it's being taxed there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. like that's that's money we're losing because we're we're pandering to those businesses. And by doing so, we're, we're not letting them pay taxes or whatever very, very often. Or, or they're very, very not paying taxes. taxes to us. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, OK, so let's let's wrap this thing up. Let's, let's end on a positive note. Uh, because we oh positive yeah I had a thing I had a thing so we have a positive before you get to your thing uh, Thomas couldn't be here with us today but Thomas wanted us to to mention uh, the Fort Worth ISD lunch program oh yeah 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 Uh, so just real quick go ahead and pull up your thing but Mm -hmm. yeah Fort Worth ISD is now offering free lunches this year Uh, I I really hope that becomes and I'm gonna use my voice as much as I can to try and maintain this hope this becomes a, a, a permanent thing uh, we had free breakfasts last year and the year before that, um, but lunch was still charged. And most of the students go off campus, at least at my campus um, anyways. But if lunch was free, uh, that might not be the case. And, and those who couldn't afford to go off campus would actually be able to to eat. And so that's that's a thing a lot of young people, especially here in this area, uh, are, you know, uh, food what, insecure. Thank you. That, that's the that's the word term I was looking for. Food insecure. Uh, and especially if you're in a learning environment, if you're at school and you're trying to learn, you, you, you can't learn on an empty stomach like that just doesn't doesn't uh, go together. No. So so that's good. That was good news. Thomas, thank you for throwing that out to us. I uh, want to let everybody know that that's the case. And so let's you know, let's go speak at those uh, school board meetings and try and say, hey, thank you for doing this. Let's do this. Let's keep continuing to do this, because I think our taxpayer dollars, uh, hopefully most people are cool with them going towards feeding the Kids. children area. I saw. I think I read that in the weekly or the the or the the article that Davis shared at the bottom. You know, has comments and there was somebody that was like, "Oh damn, my tax dollars are going to that. That's bull." And I was just like, "Really? Feeding children really? with my tax dollars? What do you want it to do? <laughs> what do you want to do with your? Ta- if that's not what we're doing, with positive them, note. Like, what are we doing? Them? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Right, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> And so, Amber, what did you get? What did you have? Okay, so um, I 
as I have mentioned, get like all 800 of the city emails every week. If you want to subscribe to the city of Fort Worth and get email updates, you can do that on fortworthtexas.gov. Um, they would love for you to subscribe, um, but do know that you will get like 800 emails a week. Um, but I, go, I try to go through all of them so that I can I can be informed. And they're not um, massive. So. Yeah, they're not they're not typically long, so um, it's easy to open them and be like, "Do I care about any of this?" All right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but one of the ones that I've been noticing is something that I thought was really interesting. I wanted to share with our listeners. Um, the city of Fort Worth is doing summer open houses. So um, basically, what they are saying um, is that if you attend one of these open houses, some of the topics that they're going to be um, Covering our uh, review, the 2022 bond election proposed list and talk with staff about the various projects that might be coming out of that. Um, you can learn about redistricting software and how you can get involved in the city's redistricting process, which we all should do. Yes, we should all be participating in redistricting. Um, that's the main reason I wanted to share this with you guys. Um, you also get to find out how they put together the 2022 budget and the annual budget process, which, again, this is our money. Yep. When the city is talking about their budget, they're talking about the money that we give them, whether it's through our property taxes, whether it's through purchasing things. Um, even Every time you buy something at a gas station or at a store, um, that sales tax goes to the city, So, um, or at least parts of it does. Um, so, yeah, so we need to um, be part of what they're doing with our money. Are they giving it all to the police? Are they giving it all to yes, the Trinity are. Vision River project uh, where, you know, Kate Granger's son is like taking our hard earned money. And, you know, I don't know what the hell he does with it. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what Kate Granger's son does with our money. Um, but if I want to know. I, I do, but I don't. I do, but I don't. Um, and so. So, yeah. So if we go to uh, go to these uh, open houses, we can learn um, and be part of the process and, you know, find out more about that. Um, we can also talk with staff about city services and find out how we can stay involved and informed about what is happening around Fort Worth, um, which is the whole point of, uh, of this podcast. Um, and so those are the things that they're advertising that we can do. Um, the, there's also going to be some uh, representatives from code compliance, from communications and public engagement, from diversity and, and inclusion, from Keep Fort Worth Beautiful, from the library, from the municipal court, from neighborhood services, from Parks and Rec, from public art. I didn't know um, that there was a public art department in Fort Worth. That's like super cool. Um, you can meet somebody from there. Um, you can meet somebody from the stormwater area um, or from the stormwater department um, transportation and public works are going to be there and the water department so we can maybe pick their brain about like you know the water cartel in, in Fort Worth um, I don't know I'm curious I want to learn more about it um, so anyways they are doing these uh, the five different open houses one we've already missed um, which was last Thursday but um, they're all in different areas so Thursday August 5th, um, there's going to be uh, one at Dunbar High School um, on Thursday, August 12th. There's one at Heritage Church of Christ. On Saturday, August 14th, there's one at R.D. Evans Community Center. And on Thursday, August 19th, there's one at Doxology Church at uh, 
4805 Arbor Lawn Drive. Um, so yeah, so some of them are in the mornings, um, the ones that are on, uh, on, the, on Saturday, or I guess the one that's on Saturdays in the morning, and then the other ones are from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes um, to how you can check this out on your own. Um, and then also, if you just want to, you could, uh, if you don't want to check there, you can actually just go to the City of Fort Worth um, website and search Summer Open Houses. Yeah, go. Get involved. Awesome. Thank you, Jennifer. That was a nice positive note. Rose, do you have any more positivity to leave us with before we bounce out of here? I'm good with the school lunches. I'll I'll stick with that now. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us and sticking it through. We appreciate it. Check us out uh, on Twitter. If you want to recommend any stories to us, we'll be more than happy to cover them at FWReview, or feel free to email us at our Gmail Fort Worth, Re- Fort Worth Freedom Review at gmail.com. I don't have this thing in front of me. Okay, cool. Sweet. <laughs> okay, awesome. Bye, guys. I think that's what you say. Yeah, I should know by now. Yay.